You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. A five-point plan with extra points for Dublin on how to live with the virus for the next six months. Confusion, open contradictions, another big rise in virus cases in Dublin, a Covid test for the Health Minister, the doll suspended, the Cabinet and senior public health officials isolating. A busy day and a lot to take in. Let's start with our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. So a day is a long time in politics, Paul. Panic over? Well, the panic came from yesterday. It was there in spades. Um, I received a call around half past four yesterday afternoon informing me that Stephen Donnelly was feeling unwell and after consulting um, with the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Ronan Glynn, that he was going to attend his GP and secure a COVID test. And, and I guess that's a, as it should be. But it set off an amazing flurry of events, the entire Cabinet and CMO restricting their movements. The Doyle being adjourned for a week with the mistaken notification that ministers were self-isolating. By 6pm, I received a call to tell me that the Shannon was going to sit, irrespective of what the Doyle was going to do. Then Labour's Alan Kelly intervened with the Taoiseach and the Doyle was to reconvene at 8pm. Mr Kelly firm in his view that, that he hadn't made the call, there wouldn't be a Doyle sitting until Tuesday. But when the Doyle did come back, Sinn Féin's Podrick McLaughlin said events were an omni-shambles with whips like him, only learning about events from tweets by political correspondents. And then finally, just after nine o'clock, Mr Donnelly texted me to say that he had received a negative test, which meant that the Cabinet could return to work this morning. So, yes, panic over. But yesterday, was it was one of those days where you're thinking you couldn't make it up. And all of this was taking place with against the political backdrop to a government announcement on how we should live with COVID-19 for the next six months. All communications will be clear and accurate, to directly quote from the 60-page plan. Clear and accurate. What happened yesterday? Well, the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health um, clearly felt that they had um, achieved that aim and that opposition politicians were effectively playing politics with the yesterday announcement and piling in in particular on the issue of what was going to happen to Dublin. Yet, In my view, their, their news conference straight after the Cabinet meeting which signed off on that plan wasn't the piece of effective communication it should have been. I mean, it was clear, crystal clear, that Dublin was going to be zoned in on by political correspondence. You know, why was Dublin, uh, from a perception point of view, being treated differently? But the answers coming back to the reporters weren't crisp and clear. And by the time it came to leaders' questions in the Doyle at half past one. A showdown was on the cards. The Sinn Féin leader, Marilyn MacDonald, ripped into the coalition, outlining what she saw as successive failures in COVID, both with this plan and delivering on testing and tracing. The Taoiseach responding in like terms. He said opposition leaders were, were throwing mud, just hoping some of it would stick and adding that when he was in opposition he had adopt, hadn't adopted such partisan politics. So far from donning the green jersey um, right across the Doyle, it was a fractious affair um, with claim and counterclaim instead. Dublin, Paul. Five extra demands beyond level two of the plan, no mention of them in the plan, only four included in a separate press release, open disagreement among senior ministers over whether it's okay to leave Dublin. And this is all based on advice given last Thursday, but only coming into effect today. And could there be more in store for Dublin this week? Well, I think in relation to the plan, the the government's argument is that um, COVID-19 is a dynamic situation, that there has to be flexibility rather than rigidity when it comes to a plan. Not everything is always going to be listed in a plan, and they received advice from Neffet on how they should deal with Dublin, and that's exactly what they do, and the measures they're taking, even if not stated, are in line with a level two operation. So that's the main um, sort of thrust of the government, and the opposition parties are saying that's 
clear as mud. If something um, is a level two, it should be listed in the consequences for level two. Not so, says the government. And that's where the row is going backwards and forwards. But on, on the wider issue of what's going to happen to Dublin, I think it's rather ominous. I think whether you're listening to the acting chief medical officer, whether you're li- listening to clinicians, whether you're listening to politicians, um, the message is the same. It's deeply worrying, um, the results that we're getting back. And if those results uh, don't start to go down, then further action is going to be taken. So I think in the next week, we're really going to learn. And a key meeting will be uh, that NEFIT meeting tomorrow. And just, you know, what consequence do those public health officials um, feel needs to come, given that the numbers are, are rising rather than falling? So the measures that are in place from midnight could change by the end of this week. They could even change by tomorrow. Yeah, um, I think the, what the government is saying is that they will be guided by public health advice. Um, Neffet has got um, absolute uh, freedom to advise what it when, uh, feels should happen and they will act on that advice. So there is like a, a clear pathway there for change, even though something was announced today. I mean, obviously, we still have that row about whether um, changes should have been instituted last week when Neffet um, gave its advice. The government felt it would be more um, cohesive and untelligible if everything was rolled into yesterday's announcement and that row will continue as well. The closure of restaurants and pubs serving food, limits on gatherings in private homes, wedding numbers down to just 25, sporting fixtures suspended, travel restrictions into and out of Dublin. Rising COVID-19 infection rates in the capital are expected to result in the government today ratifying a series of restrictions for the city and county. On foot of recommendations from the National Public Health Emergency Team, which were considered last night by the COVID Oversight Group, composed of senior government officials. Paul Reid, Chief Executive of the HSE, is a member of that group and he's with us here in studio. A very good morning to you, Paul Reid, and thank you for coming in to talk to us this morning. morning. We'll talk about these Dublin restrictions in a moment, but first of all, you spoke yesterday at your briefing of the country having reached a very concerning juncture in relation to COVID. What are you seeing in the COVID figures and in our hospitals that give gives you cause for concern. Yeah, concern is particularly related to the facts and the evidence that we're seeing over the past week and few weeks. I mean, ultimately what we're seeing now is the average cases per day nationally at about 246. And that's been a 39% increase over the last seven days per daily cases. Increasingly concerning is that 39% of the cases that we're now seeing emerging are emerging from the community. So they're not emerging from outbreaks, they're not emerging from close contacts. Uh, so the source is somewhere within the community and can't be actually pinpointed. So high transmission levels in, in the cases, high positive positivity levels increasing. But also from a HSE perspective, we, we have started, thankfully, from the first phase of a lower base of uh, hospital cases and ICU, but that has been significantly increasing over the past week, 10 days. So from 23 hospitalizations to now 77 this morning and from 6 ICU to now 14 this morning. So they're the concerning factors that we're seeing emerging. And at this stage, are, are the hospitals able to cope or is the pressure coming on? Yeah, well, obviously we're heading into a very difficult period ahead as we head into winter, which is normally a very difficult period anyway. Uh, so right now, uh, the hospitals are coping in terms of, but it's not just ICU. We're now dealing with stepping back up our services. We're now dealing heading into a winter period. So we will see our hospital system coming under pressure. But specifically related to IC or I, uh, COVID cases, yes, it's coping. But we are seeing now emerging in Dublin uh, some of the cases. It doesn't take a large number of cases to start freezing wards and beds 
Uh, so we are seeing some of the Dublin hospitals coming under significant pressure with the positive cases that they're dealing with. So when you say beds and wards being frozen, uh, a case that involves what? A COVID case that has been identified or being treated within the hospital system or may have been tested in the hospital system and has emerged. So you have to obviously isolate Mm -hmm. and you have to protect and and clean. So it it does give a period of time where wards are out of service uh, and that constrains and already constrained capacity in our hospital system. So uh, it's not overwhelmed right now, uh, but it is a point where we're seeing the impact of the rising cases in our hospitals. All right, we'll come back to some of this in, in a moment or two, but the restrictions now that we're expecting in, in Dublin, uh, you've had sight of them. Um, uh, the, the HSE has represented on, on NEFET, and as I said, you're a member of this oversight group. Um, are, are we heading in the direction that's been widely reported this morning for Dublin? Well, ultimately, I am on the oversight group, but ultimately this is a decision for government and the Cabinet Committee will meet later on, as you know, and government will make decisions later on and ultimately government make those decisions. Uh, but ultimately what I was outlining at our own media press conference yesterday, we are at an important kind of crossroads. Mm. Uh, nobody wants to go back and particularly f- me from a health service perspective, lockdowns significantly impact on the health service as well. Uh, we see a lot of people coming through with anxiety and stress and tension and mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, and so that's nowhere where any of us want to go. So, so we, it are is going, about, we are going back. Well, I think what it is about right now, um, one way or the other, whatever decisions emerge from government today, it is about everybody now really taking the issue very serious, uh, really taking the public health measures that we have to take. Uh, if we keep going on the road we're going, we're hiding into a road that's in, in trouble. Uh, and we're heading into a road that could get us back to the point where we have to take more restrictive action. So there is a time where we really need to put the call to arms to the but public we know, again. But we know a big source of infection are gatherings in private homes, um, uh, and yet it's the restaurants and the pubs that serve food that have been targeted here. Out of the blue, they've been told last night, uh, expect your, your businesses to be closed down this evening. Yeah, and I think that's a kind of point that we have to help the public just to understand even more, because there's a tendency to marginalise the issue into certain settings, whether it's meat plants, nursing homes, uh, schools uh, or restaurants. But actually what's happening, as I just said at the start, 40% of the cases emerge from the community. So in essence, it's brought from the community back into the home and highly transmits from the community back into the home. So it is where people gather, it is where people congregate um, in, 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 in public settings as well. Uh, so but it the is number of cases that have been tra- traced back to restaurants and, and the pubs that are open uh, are a fraction of those that are occurring in homes. Yeah, but I think the public experts are the, the guys who can identify. It is about where people meet. It is where people... And we've seen instances where the reality of it is you might see a group of six people meeting uh, and we can see this happening. And it, it isn't that one or two persons get affected. It can be five of them get affected very quickly or infected very quickly. So it is about transmission in various settings being brought back to yeah. the home. And but by, by, by closing those restaurants and pubs that are open, do you not actually risk you know, increasing the number of gatherings in people's homes? Because that's the place where people they'll, they'll visit the off-licence and then they're more likely perhaps to gather in, in private homes than in, in a controlled environment of a pub or a, a restaurant. No, and this is where I was sending out yesterday, our own briefing. We need to get back to the real basics that have worked. And it's not just about one single isolated measure or one sector that we need to address. It's about a whole suite of measures. It's about every one of us today reducing the number of contacts that we have. This works. It's about every one of us today. As you meet somebody, 
nearly even treat that yourself may be positive, not just that the person you're meeting may be positive. And how would you protect them and how would you protect yourself? So it is a suite of the really good basic measures that make a big difference. Right. There's also talk of restrictions, reported restrictions on, on third level colleges and, and universities. And we'll be talking to a college president a bit later. And the point he'll be making is that the universities should be treated at this stage as an essential service in the same way the schools are uh, and childcare, uh, and that there should be that kind of focus um, and uh, allowance, if you like, for them to operate in a much more normal way than has been suggested. Well, I think what's happened to date is uh, as sectors emerge and come back, there's lots of guidance and will be and there are for the third level institutions and uh, that sector. And that's what we're, we're actually working with them from a public health perspective to increase the awareness and the guidance that they should operate under. And that works. Uh, and that's the way we'll be working with that sector, too. Well, the schools, as I said, are regarded as essential service, a priority. I think uh, it's, it's well acknowledged at this stage. Uh, and you were briefing yesterday that there have been a rising number of cases in, in schools since they reopened at the beginning of the month. I think 96 schools have had tests carried out, 35 positive results. But the HSC, you don't believe that schools or school pupils are a source of transmission. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. If they do arise in schools, I think you're saying that they come in from the community. How can you be sure of that at this early stage in the school year? Yeah, I think what's happened in schools in the last couple of weeks is worth just reflecting for, for your listeners. Uh, we have, over the past couple of weeks, been working with schools. Now, if you take it, a uh, significant number of our cases, in, let's say the 23rd, last week in August, uh, came from schools. About um, 17% of our total um, tests came from uh, swab tests came from schools because people were getting back and that was a positivity rate of about 1.2% 1.4% in the following week uh, we doubled the numbers about 36% of our t- tests came from 0 to 10 age group uh, but the positivity reduced but uh, it's now 0.5% so we are increasingly seeing people coming forward f- with symptoms but not testing positive and that's okay that's good because people are taking good, good public health advice what, we are, what isn't happening is that the high transmission levels uh, be- between children and between children and adults so of the 2000 we have 96 schools as you mentioned mm. uh, 35 mm. cases across those schools where we've been managing um, within those uh, 96 schools 2100 people between uh, uh, children and teachers being tested and 35 cases identified. So we're not seeing a high transmission level between children, thankfully. What teachers are saying, though, that uh, delays, as they see it, in getting results back mean the students and teachers are, are staying away from school while they while they wait for the all clear. And, and they're asking, why can't they get the fast-tracked tests like Stephen Donnelly had so they would know, perhaps even within a matter of hours, that they can go back to school? Well, first of all, I do want to acknowledge we've worked really closely and I want to acknowledge the work of principals who have acted really well with us over the past number of weeks, working with our public health teams who go in straight away, uh, work through whether a pod should be closed, whether a classroom should be closed, um, and, and never to the stage where a recommendation of a school should be closed from our public health team. So it's working quite well with us. In terms of our tests and turnaround, what we have seen is very quickly uh, the classroom being identified, their contacts being identified, including parents, and the tests. And in general, we have those tests turned around and identified within 24 hours. Uh, and that's proven to be very effective. And there has been a really good collaboration between schools and our public health teams. What, what proportion of those 2,000 individuals would have been turned around in that period in 24 hours? The vast majority have been turned around. We have a very close, we're working, we have three calls a day uh, with our public health teams um, and, and schools and, and our own HZ organisation to assess where what issues are emerging. So, you know, I think we always believed the first few weeks would be very challenging. 
Uh, and we certainly are experiencing that. But I, I must say, overall, it's been managed really well, thankfully to really great work by principals. I think we also all understand, though, that testing is the key weapon in the battle against COVID. The World Health Organization is saying at the outset of this, test, test and test again. The HSE, you are promising 100,000 tests a, a week uh, back in March at the outset of all this. We're still well short of that. Where, where's the pinch point? Is, is it the labs? Is it the test centres? Are there staffing issues? Yeah, well, just to take what, what we've built, where we are now, and briefly where we're going to get to. Uh, we built this system midstream. Seven months ago in Ireland, nobody knew what a testing and tracing system was uh, to the extent that we have it now. We did our one millionth test uh, earlier this week, uh, which is a significant milestone on, on the island. Uh, yesterday, we did 82, or sorry, last week, we did 82,500 swabs completed mm. across uh, the island. And but system. the actual number of test results coming back was lower, wasn't it? 76,000. Oh, but that's just yeah. a lag between okay. the swabbing things. So 70, it's, 70, still, it's, still, it's still well short of the 100,000, which was the, the benchmark that was set. No, no, and, and just to be clear, what we set out during the summer was to develop the capacity mm. to deliver 100,000 tests. And that's during the quieter period, exactly what we did. We built that capacity. Now, we now have 46 labs on the island with a capacity of 100,000. What we do on a weekly basis is schedule out our tests uh, from a number of perspectives. What tests mm-hmm. are coming through from the community, what tests are coming through contacts, and our programme, serial testing programme. Now, we have to recalibrate that on any given day. So you day. had to suspend the tests in the meat plants because the pressure came on elsewhere. The capacity wasn't there. No, what we did at that time was absolutely the right thing to do. What we saw emerging was a full day's capacity, 15,000 coming through just from the community alone and close contacts. And the reality of it is the positivity coming through from community, close contacts can be up to 20%. So what we did was we rescheduled for three days at the meat processing plants. We tested 17,500 employees in the meat test processing plants. Uh, the positivity rate is about 0.3% right now. Mm. We rescheduled for three days because we primarily focused on the symptomatic referrals coming through from the community, which is where the transmission primarily emerges from. Just a final word, we were talking earlier to Fergal Hickey in relation to ICU capacity. Um, the number of beds, and again, this figure was given yesterday, 281 ICU beds, which is actually fewer than there were at the beginning of this month. The figure was 356. Why have 75 ICU beds gone out of the system as we face into the winter and possibly a second COVID surge? Yeah, just briefly explain, and I heard Fergal's discussion with you, and I highly respect Fergal's uh, view, and I'm, well, he was on one of the first few meetings I met uh, to get a greater understanding from my perspective when I joined you. HSA, but ICU. We started pre-COVID with 225 beds, which Fergal is absolutely correct. is about half the capacity we would like to have and should have. Uh, as part of COVID and our funding, we brought got an extra 35 beds in place, 255, and in the last few months, we've developed a capacity of 282. The extra figure that you say was some great work done by emergency uh, consultants, like the Catherine Motherway, who you've had on, our ICU yeah. consultants. They brought a capacity which was building more surge capacity when it's needed to over 300 uh, and beds. Yeah, I know. But we had, there was a recommendation many years ago for 500 ICU beds and, and the number, and we're right in the middle of the pandemic, has gone down and you're back more as to where we were at, before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. No, the extra capacity that we can bring on is related to extra staff. During the first phase, we trained up to 2,000 staff. An ICU bed takes six nurses comparison to one nurse for an ordinary bed. So we had to train up extra nurses if we need that storage capacity. 
But I do share the concerns and part of our funding as part of our 600 million funding secured from government is to invest more in more ICU beds. So how many more ICU beds will there be then? Well, we're going to launch our winter plan just next week and uh, part of that will be bringing on more ICU beds as part of it. Well, ultimately, if you saw what we did during the pandemic, we got close to 400 beds. So we will bring it on as we need in storage. But I would make the point again to your listeners, that's why the actions we take now are really important. We can't have a situation where we have, and every one of those people today is your, is our relations, could be uh, passing to an ICU bed. We can't let it happen. All right, Paul Reed, Chief Executive of the HSE, thanks very much for talking to us. To the US now, where at least 35 people have died and dozens are missing due to wildfires that have ravaged the West Coast. California, Oregon and Washington have been fighting violent outbreaks of blazes since the middle of August. More than four million acres of land are reported to have been burnt and that's resulted in some of the world's worst air quality levels being recorded in Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles and Portland. President Donald Trump has insisted that the cause of the fires is down to poor forest management. At a meeting in the Golden State yesterday, Californian officials challenged President Trump's stance on the cause of the wildfires. Wildfires. A little earlier, I spoke to Steve Futterman, CBS News correspondent in California, and began by asking him about the reaction to President Trump's comments. Obviously, people who believe that climate change is one of the reasons that these fires are so intense and so troublesome for the firefighters, they're just dismissing them. When the president said, I don't think science knows, actually, uh, I think many people were uh, a bit surprised he would say something like that. So the, the critics of Mr. Trump are going after him. His defenders are, are of course, defending him as well. It's not much different than uh, almost anything else he says. You have these two groups. One group goes after him. The scientists have, have said what he said is absolutely wrong. Uh, and many governors have criticized him as well. Governor Newsom, the California governor, was very gentle in his comments. He more or less was saying to the president during this gathering that uh, we disagree on climate change. And I essentially uh, hope that you'll understand that we do have a disagreement and you'll understand our point of view. And the president seemed to nod. I'm paraphrasing what the governor said. And then these other comments came up afterwards. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the damage so far? Well, we've just never seen anything like this. I mean, I've covered many of the major fires. I've been in cities that have been destroyed by these fires. But what we're seeing, not just this year, but the previous years in recent years, they seem to get worse and worse. And what we're seeing now are three main states being hit by these fires. California, of course, and then Oregon and Washington. Uh, All three governors saying it's uh, the intensity of these fires largely due to climate change. No one is saying that fires haven't existed all along. We've always had wildfire issues in the western states. But the intensity, the, the, the ferociousness of these fires, that has been what's changed. And we've seen that here. Uh, fires just moving so quickly. We have seen fire trucks, you know, the engines uh, overcome by fire. You know, the fire crews understand fires as well as anyone. They're able to escape in time. Not always the case here. And the deaths were seen primarily because people are not prepared to deal with these new kind of fires that move so quickly and they just can't escape. As you say, there's three different states involved. How has each one responded and coped with what's unfolding? Well, they're pretty much trying to cope the same way. One thing that all three states are facing is is a lack of resources. You know, these states have what they call 
uh, agreements between each other, mutual agreements where if California is having problems, then Oregon and Washington will send fire resources to help California. But you're not having that here because of the situations that all three states are facing. So resources are being really stretched to the limit. Uh, every every available fire fighter is being used every available air resource is being used but it's just not enough and the conditions are improving a, a tiny bit i i'm almost hesitant to say improving because that gives you a, a false impression uh, almost like a uh, almost like a grain of sand if you will they're improving a bit maybe we're going to get some improvement later in the week but the concerns are that these fires create their own weather systems even if the weather system improves the weather system that is within the fire creates its own different problems and the firefighters are really at a loss to try to predict where these fires are going and we've seen that a few times in these fires where you've had almost a fire tornado develop. We know 35 people have lost their lives so far do we know anything about any of these cases? Well, we know a few of them. In one case that's gotten a great deal of publicity, uh, a family was trying to escape the smoke, uh, a mother uh, and, and a father, uh, the mother pregnant with a child and their one-year-old child. The, the parents survived. Unfortunately, the one-year-old child did not survive, and the mother also lost the baby that she was carrying. That has been a story that's really touched the hearts of many. Uh, we also had a story of Josiah Williams. The reason we knew about him was his mother was telling people, you know, going to the news media, my son is missing, my son is missing. Uh, he's a good kid. He's a smart kid. Uh, and then he was found dead. He was not able to escape the fire. So we've seen a widespread, many different types of people being caught up in these fires. Elderly people not able to escape as well. They are among the dead as well. Dozens of others are missing. How difficult is it for those who are searching for survivors? Oh, it's very hard. I mean, right now they're trying to fight the fire. And then you have this other issue of trying to find people who cannot be found. So they'll go to the charred ruins of where the person was last seen. If they find the body there, then, you know, you know what's happened. But sometimes these people have been trying to escape the fire in vehicles and you just don't know where they are. So every vehicle that's being seen, destroyed, uh, officials go through to make sure that there's no one inside. There have been record levels of air pollution recorded in some major cities. How far away is this being felt? Oh, I mean, it's it's being felt you know hundreds and hundreds of miles away. I mean, Los Angeles uh, is being hit by it. The, the two cities that have been hit the hardest, of course, Portland, Oregon, which for the last few days has had the worst air pollution in the world. San Francisco has not been much better. You have these moments in each of these cities where the daytime air turns almost an orange glow because you have the smoke covering the the sky and then when the sun tries to shine through it it really doesn't shine through and you get this very very almost dusk-like orange glow it's it's a beautiful glow but it's obviously the result of just horrible destruction cbs news correspondent steve futterman British Parliament will begin debating a bill today which breaks international law by overriding parts of the withdrawal treaty on Brexit. The UK Internal Market Bill aims to make changes to the agreed rules on goods moving between the North and Great Britain, as well as the agreed rules around state aid. 
We can talk now to Gavin Barrett, who's Professor of EU Law at UCD Sutherland Law School. Gavin, good morning and welcome. Uh, and just reading now, the former Attorney General Geoffrey Cox is on Times Radio in London this morning. He's saying, we signed up, we knew what we were doing. The crossing of an important boundary is when a government says it will break the law and an international treaty that it has signed. He can't support this bill. Uh, Boris Johnson is, is proceeding with it, though, and if it passes in its current form, what can the EU do about it? Well, uh, not a great deal, um, uh, quite frankly. Um, uh, the uh, withdrawal agreement was uh, signed up to by the United Kingdom because if it, uh, it didn't, it would never get an economic partnership deal. Um, so it was always swallowed somewhat unwillingly. And I think there always was a danger that if the UK uh, didn't actually get a future relationship uh, agreement, uh, an economic partnership agreement, in other words, uh, it would back out of the withdrawal agreement, uh, even though it had signed up to it. And that is completely illegal um, under um, international law. But there's not an awful lot uh, the European Union can do about it, except continue to deny the the, the United Kingdom an economic partnership um, uh, unless um, uh, they they turn around and sign up fully to the withdrawal uh, agreement again. Um, One would have to say um, it's a quite extraordinary thing uh, for a a state like the United Kingdom um, to turn its back on international law in this way because uh, I mean it does and even has in recent days uh, relied on international law to pressurise other countries like Iran to comply with their obligations. So of course it completely undermines its own position uh, in doing that. It makes it an untrustworthy partner um, for negotiations um, uh, and it, it puts the UK in very strange company as well because it's normally only rogue states that do uh, this kind of thing. And very importantly for Ireland, of course, it takes us backwards because um, um, the, the idea was that we would have the withdrawal agreement and then um, an economic partnership agreement. Well, now we're in the final days, what are supposed to be the final days of agreeing an economic partnership agreement, and now we're going back and reopening mm. the withdrawal agreement again. So it's very strange days indeed. So if it is that serious, and I think everyone agrees that it is to break international law, realistically, how can the EU keep going with these trade talks? Um, well, with great uh, difficulty um, uh, is uh, the answer um, uh, to that. And for example, the European Parliament uh, is threatening at this stage that um, it can't go ahead um, uh, with uh, an economic partnership agreement unless all aspects of the withdrawal agreement are signed up to. Um, I think there has to be some suspicion, uh, I think, that uh, Boris Johnson never really wanted a deal at all, that perhaps he only signed up to the withdrawal agreement in order to win the general election. And his real plan was, was more or less to do what he's doing now to tear it up, uh, including the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, and uh, to, to sabotage talks uh, uh, for a trade deal and blame the EU for the mess. And that's pretty much how things have gone because, um, you know, he did abbreviate um, uh, the period for, for the economic partnership talks enormously. Um, the UK has really made very little effort to compromise in these talks. And now um, there's a blame game going on going on at the stage he's blaming the European Union and I suppose the suspicion has to be that he's trying to make the European Union look bad the talks are collapsing anyway so you make sure the European Union gets the blame and uh, just make everyone angry with the European Union invent some bogus um, argument for doing this and say that you know there's going to be a food blockade or they're trying to break up Is that a bogus argument Gavin? Oh, it, it, it certainly is, yes. I mean, the rules we're talking about here are the normal kind of food uh, safety rules that apply in relation to all um, uh, third countries. So, you know, and the notion that, that the, the European Union is trying to break up the UK is, is complete nonsense. Boris Johnson actually signed up to what the European Union are doing, actually expelled anyone who opposed it from the Conservative Party and based an election campaign on the wonderful deal he got. And now, apparently, it's a food blockade and an, and an attempt to break up the United Kingdom. I mean, this is absolute nonsense.
Okay, thank you very much, Gavin Barrett, Professor of EU Law at UCD Sutherland Law School. Approved housing body Cluid is today launching a 23 million euro regeneration project, St Mary's Mansions on Shaw McDermott Street in Dublin. St Mary's is the first major redevelopment in the area following the publication of the Mulvey Report in 2016, which highlighted the need for action to make the northeast inner city area safer and more vibrant. St Mary's Mansions today welcomes back its first residence following the three year redevelopment. And our reporter Angus Cox is there. Good morning, Angus. Good morning, Gavin. Thank you. And uh, we're here at the newly redeveloped St. Mary's Mansions on Shaw McDermott Street in Dublin's north inner city, as you say. And the first residents, they're going to be moving back in following a three-year redevelopment of this flat complex that was built back in the 1940s, so a considerable time ago. The redesign, it includes communal, social and play areas a community room and socially aware landscaping. We'll have to find out a little bit more about what that means. I'm joined by Cluid Housing's new business director, Fiona Cormican, and she'll be telling me more about the redevelopment here at St. Mary's shortly. But first, some of the former residents at St. Mary's who moved out while it was being redeveloped, they are also here this morning seeing their new homes for the first time. And two of them, Betty O'Neill and Susan Kane, they were up bright and early getting the first glimpses of their new homes. And they were kind enough to let me follow them around as they saw them for the very first time. There you are now. Susan opening the door for the first time. Yeah. Here's the kitchen, mate. It's lovely, isn't it? It's beautiful. Is it what you expected? Yeah. I think it was about that, yeah. isn't it? Um, what we were expecting. Yeah. It looks better, yeah. yeah. Oh, when did you first move into St Mary's? Um, when I was born, my mother got married and she lived with my grandmother up in 28J and she had me and my sister and then we moved down to, I moved down to Sheriff Street with my mother but I come back here every weekend and then I moved in when I was 15 with my granny. So born and raised and then I had my three children here. So they were born and raised in them. The windows are beautiful. Because you guys chose, do you remember? Maybe. She said she doesn't remember. Yes, we yeah. had meetings all through the design and all through the build. You and we came care. back to the residents to get uh, their input. And uh, so they changed the windows, they changed the deck access, we had everything enclosed and they changed that. You picked the kitchens, the tiling. Yeah, the tiling, yeah. The, you designed the playgrounds and, yeah. the, and, the, and the grounds. Yeah. And he kept the name. Kept yeah, he wanted a name. name. Yeah. Here you go, Betty. Bring your bell, Dashie. <laughs> <laughs> go in then. No, you have to come in, not me. Oh, it's big, isn't it? Susan. Do you have a tray? Are you not happy today? No. Oh, it's big. Yeah, it's lovely. Oh, you can do it right out of the Yeah. You have a nice big living space though. Oh, it is. It's lovely. Yeah, it's big enough. What do you think? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It's huge. It is, isn't it? It's lovely. Now, you've had a little... uh, You've had a tutorial. How are you going to use this? Sarah will have to show me. I think she'll be the whole day um, trying to show me that because I haven't got a clue. So that's basically your new smart display. It shows you what's happening. There's cameras. You can see who's at your front door. You can see who's in the courtyard. I take it you didn't have anything like that in the old no, place? No. No. Nothing no, not like that. <laughs> so I can ring anybody that's in? I think so. 
Betty O'Neill and Susan Kane, two of the early residents here today getting a tour of their new homes. As I said, I'm joined by Cluid Housing's new business director, Fiona Cormican. Fiona, it's a big day for Cluid and a big day for the residents here at St Mary's. It's a very big day for us and Cluid are absolutely delighted to welcome the residents back to St Mary's Mansions. Cluid have a long history in the northeast inner city and our headquarters has been here for quite some time and I myself worked with uh, many of the people here in St Mary's Mansions when I was a youth worker back in the early 90s. So it's a very big day and we're absolutely delighted to be uh, that Minister Brian came along to open this building for us today. Now I did my intro in one of the kitchens of the new apartments. We've now moved out into the courtyard. We're here at the playground. I, I said in my intro we have this social aware landscaping and the redesign is very significant in that regard. It is. I mean, this is a, a pre-war building, so it was mass concrete building, so it was a very challenging build. But what we have done is things like, it's simple things when you talk about socially aware landscaping. We're talking about natural light. They're dual aspect apartments, so we've got natural light. The contractor Ganson came up with the idea of putting glass on the balconies as opposed to um, solid materials. So you've got light coming right through. Kitchens face onto the courtyard, so people can watch their children playing in the courtyard. We've got wildflower gardens, as you can see. We have beautiful wooden structures um, for the children's playground and we have the storytelling corner as you can see so it's all about residents creating a community and creating something very sustainable and as I mentioned it was built back in the 1940s so a wartime construction and back then there was a bomb shelter here that's been retained now I think it's been used as a bike shelter is it? a plant room basically and bike shelter and some storage for the residents so. And when I was getting the tour with uh, Betty and Susan of their new apartments, they were obviously very excited. You got a, a, the, a, the seal of approval from them. But there was no equipment in there, no white goods, no furniture, no bed. So how soon will they be actually ready to move into? Well, they are ready to move into because uh, we don't provide the white goods, we don't provide the beds. This is independent living. Cluth Housing Association is a socially aware landlord and we're a non-profit landlord. But uh, people have come to live with us independently and their home is their home. So they furnish their home how they want. They buy, you know, they get... Um, uh, they, there's grants available for equipment and so on, but basically it's their home and they, they take care of the furnishing. Okay, Fiona Cormican, Cluid Housing's new business director. Thank you very much. The government is to bring in new legislation to increase the maximum jail sentence for conspiracy to murder to life in prison. The maximum sentence has been 10 years since the 19th century. There are also plans to introduce three new offences for terrorist crimes. Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, is in our doll studio. And Minister, thank you for coming in this morning. Good morning, hi. Why are you raising the sentence for conspiracy to murder? So there is an anomaly at the moment. Essentially, we have two acts, as you mentioned, one that goes back to 1861 uh, and the other is from 2006. Uh, and it essentially, between them, they preclude a judge from imposing a sentence longer than 10 years for conspiracy to murder. If you look at the, the sentence for attempted murder or murder at the moment, they are life in prison. Um, and what I believe, and I think the, the Gardaí and also the judiciary have outlined, is that uh, while conspiracy to murder, the act doesn't happen, because the Gardaí intercept it, the crime in itself is no less severe. So I want to send a very clear message uh, to those, in particular those at the top who uh, conspire, who uh, essentially put the, the, the wheels in motion for an attempted murder, that they are not exempt from this kind of penalty and that it is the most severest crime and it should be treated in the same way. 
you're also introducing new offences for terrorism. When, when will all these changes come into effect? So, uh, thankfully, I received approval from government this week to draft and to begin drafting the legislation for both of these. So there are two separate pieces of legislation, uh, the Criminal Justice Miscellaneous Bill, which has a number of other elements to it also, but then also the Criminal Justice Terrorist Offences. So I hope to have these, um, I suppose, the, the legislation uh, written as soon as possible and then brought to the House as quickly as possible. So I, I would uh, probably assume, though, it will be early next year. But again, I think that the, the, the point here is that we have seen more so in recent years um, and the Gardaí themselves have said in recent years they have foiled at least 75 different attempts um, where the outcome would have, they believed, been death. Um, they want to ensure that if somebody is charged with conspiracy to murder, which is an offence that is now increasing, um, that there is a uh, parallel and that there is a severe penalty at the end of it. And unfortunately at the moment, 10 years is the max that any judge can, can impose. You've said that you endorse and welcome the findings of the policing authority in their recent report on how Gardaí have dealt with the pandemic. They've criticised the use of anti-spit hoods by Gardaí and say there's no evidence that they effectively protect Gardaí and that they breach several human rights. Will you act on what they say? Well, look, I think we have to look at two things here. Firstly, um, the Gardaí need to be kept safe and protected, uh, particularly throughout this pandemic. They have been on the ground, frontline throughout all of this um, and we've seen an increase in incidents, almost 200 since the middle of April where they have been either spat at or coughed at which is very serious given the pandemic that we're dealing with. Um, the spit hoods have been used in, in very limited circumstances and were only introduced as an emergency measure. However, I do note that the, the recommendations and the words from the policing authority. Um, I know that the Gardaí have commenced a review themselves as to the efficiency of the hoods and they have received a detailed um, report from the authority so I think that will have to be taken into account. Obviously, the 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 work of the Gardaí, this is an operational matter and a policing matter, but I do expect that they will take those into consideration. You say you know what they say, but will you act on what they say? This is something, this is an operational matter for the Gardaí, but I am assured that they are undertaking a review of this and that they will take into consideration what the authority are saying. But we have to balance this with protecting and keeping our Gardaí safe. If it is being suggested that these don't do that, then absolutely I expect that the Gardaí and the Commissioner will take that into account. This day last week, the acting chief medical officer warned that, quote, there's a narrowing window to bring the current trajectory of the disease, COVID-19, under control. And he recommended further measures for Dublin. Why didn't your government act straight away? So we have uh, a situation and, and at that time we were introducing the new roadmap uh, where we have very clearly set out levels one to five. Um, the idea that perhaps we would introduce new measures and then two days later introduce further measures and then potentially measures after that. We're trying to bring clarity to people. We're trying to ensure that whether you're in County Dublin or the rest of the country, you understand and you know exactly what measures are in place for you. We acted on those recommendations from NEFIT. We introduced, uh, as part of the new roadmap on Tuesday, um, we introduced those essentially tighter restrictions and measures for Dublin as part of the overall picture and what we're going to do now today depending on and obviously based on what recommendations come from NEFID and they will meet later on today if there is a requirement to go even further for the County of Dublin then we will act on that and we will do that but obviously I mean people can see and anybody who saw the figures last night the increase uh, incident rate is, is it is increasing the percentage of um, cases that came from Dublin last night was at 55% it's a worrying trend and absolutely, if there is a recommendation to act even further, then we will do that. But the advice on 
uh, households in Dublin and travel into and out of the city was issued last Thursday. And since last Thursday, the incidence of the virus has gone up by 50%. It's doubled in Dublin Northwest. And Ronan Lynn last Thursday said, if left unchecked, had the potential to transmit widely and quickly, both within Dublin and to other areas of the county. The recommendations for Dublin weren't issued for another five days. Why did it take five days to act? Again, I accept that the recommendations were made on Thursday, but it was made very clear over that weekend that the figures in Dublin, the incident rate was increasing, that we were asking people to restrict their movement, to restrict their engagement, to continue, whether it's face coverings, cough etiquette, washing their hands, that there would be new recommendations on Tuesday. And knowing not, that we were not, in a Minister, state with of respect flux. to limit travel or to reduce households, uh, household contacts, as was recommended by the acting chief medical officer on Thursday, those recommendations weren't passed on to the public until Tuesday. Those recommendations were passed on on Tuesday because we had very clearly set out that we would introduce a new roadmap. We made it clear, I believe, and and I think anybody who listened to our chief medical officer, but also uh, to any of our experts over the weekend, that we were asking people, not just in Dublin, but all over the country, to restrict their movements, to restrict their engagement within the various different households as well. The roadmap, we wanted to be clear on Tuesday, and I understand that people are saying, well, there was a various different levels of two on Tuesday but we didn't want to have two different announcements in a short space of time and then potentially a third which adds to the confusion I think. So we are very clear the roadmap was announced on Tuesday it very clearly sets out the whole country is on level two. We implemented as part of that then the recommendations from NEFIT for Dublin specifically um, but you know look even since then the figures have unfortunately uh, yes. continued to move in the wrong direction and that is why NEFET are meeting again today and based on that if there are recommendations the new cabinet or the new uh, subcommittee will meet uh, they will then engage with the, the Cabinet subcommittee and then the wider committee as well. Yes, there are two committees that will consider NEFET's recommendations including a new oversight committee. Who's on it and what's their role? So the committee has a number of permanent members. Uh, you have the Secretary General of the Government or the Department of Antishuk, Martin Fraser, who I think most people know at this stage. You have the Secretary General of my own Department in Justice, in Health, um, the CMO and then the Chief Executive of the HSE, Paul Reid, depending on recommendations that come from NEFET. So perhaps if there's a recommendation uh, on schools, the Minister or the the Secretary General of the Department of Education will attend and vice versa. So depending on the issue that's being recommended or the change, the relevant Secretary Generals will attend. The reason that this committee has been introduced essentially is to make sure that where recommendations are made, that we can implement them, that they are enforceable. Uh, And we saw in the past, you know, an example example that has been used frequently where recommendations were made around school transport actually implementing those and the implications that they had for getting back to school, the financial implications but the the practical implications, it's to allow those kind of things to be worked out before a political decision is made so this is not to to add an extra layer this is to make sure that from when a recommendation is made by NEFIT to when it's agreed at a political level, everything has been thought through and it can be implemented in in a safe and in an effective way And when do you expect, when will you introduce further measures to control the spread of the virus in Dublin? So again, we don't know what NEFIT will say to us. If they ask or if they suggest that we implement new measures, that if we essentially or potentially escalate um, the Dublin area, then the committee, I believe, will meet tomorrow and recommendations will be made subsequently after that. Ahead of the weekend, yes? Ahead of the weekend, yes. Justice Minister Helen McEntee, thank you very much for speaking to us on the programme this morning. 
Well, the neighbour provided a bit of a surprise yesterday. There could be life on Venus. We're joined by space expert and scientist Dr Neve Shaw. Morning, Neve. Good morning, Audrey. How are you? What's been seen? Well, um, this is a long study that was reported yesterday uh, live um, in combination with um, a research paper that was published in Nature Astronomy. And it's a body of work involving about 19 different scientists around the world. So when something that large gets published uh, in uh, nature, it's usually a significant discovery. So what they've discovered is um, the existence of clouds of gas called phosphine um, in the upper atmosphere of Venus, in the cooler atmosphere of Venus. And phosphine is a gas that's always been associated with microbial life on Earth. So it's present in things like sludge activators and sewage treatments plants. And it's it's quite a, a toxic gas. And um, and so that's an indicator that there could possibly be life on Venus or they don't a whole new area of chemistry exists on the planet Venus. Venus. So it's really, really exciting for um for astronomers and astrophysicists that are looking at the planets and trying to figure out, are we alone? Are there other signs of life on celestial objects outside of Earth? And it certainly points to something new. Okay, so the discovery of phosphine is leading uh, questions to be asked about the the possibility of life on Venus. What do you think? Is that possible? Well, it's always a possibility. I mean, you know, there have been indicators of forms of life like the existence of water on Mars, um, on some of the moons of of Saturn, um, possibly also on comets. So the existence of like small microbial life forms or small bacteria um, isn't a a big stretch, but actually, um, you know, being able to measure it from such distances is is pretty phenomenal. So... um, you know, for a very long time, we thought we were the only planet that had organic matter on it. And now with the discovery of more and more planets orbiting other stars in, you know, in addition to our own sun, it's looking more and more likely that there are and um, that there's organic material out there um, in but our universe. And so this is another kind of a, a wave to that. OK, but is is Venus not completely inhospitable to life? It, it's 450 degrees. It has no oxygen. It has sulfuric acid. Yes, I know it is quite inhospitable. <laughs> but this is a section of the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere of Venus. So it's like 50 kilometres above the surface of Venus. So the actual surface of Venus, it's impossible to live on. Its atmosphere is so dense, it's almost like um, trying to live you know, um, one kilometre at the base of an an ocean, about one kilometre deep. Like it's really, really, really thick atmosphere. But as you go higher up, the temperatures cool down. So they have discovered this phosphine gas in the section of the atmosphere where temperatures are around 30 degrees centigrade, centigrade and the atmosphere has a similar pressure to that of Earth. So it has a lot of the requirements necessary for a gas such as that to exist similar to that on Earth. But I mean, you know, it's very early days, but it is a very exciting discovery. What type of life might be able to survive on such a surface? On surface of Venus, hmm. nothing, nothing, very little can survive on the surface of Venus because it's so, it's so noxious. But um, up in the atmosphere, there is an opportunity that maybe um, 
you know, the idea is that, you know, for many, many, many years ago, Venus uh, may have had oceans and it was a planet very similar to ours. And then due to the greenhouse effect, the whole um, ecosystem and the whole planet life cycle changed. And anything that did live on the surface of Venus um, that could survive went up into um, into the atmosphere. And so there's this notion that perhaps there is microbial life, but very similar to Earth, higher up on Earth's atmosphere, you have very small bacteria that basically get transported around the planet in water droplets. And so the idea is that could this potentially be the same? And maybe not in water droplets on Venus, maybe it's in droplets of, of sulfuric acid, which we know is present in that atmosphere. Our two neighbours are Mars and Venus. Venus yes. shines brighter in the sky. It, it comes yeah. closer to us in space. It's, it's almost Earth's yeah. twin. Yet it's never had a look in when it's compared to Mars because I think there are six spacecraft in orbit around Mars at the moment. Yeah. Two more on the surface, more on the way. Poor Venus yeah. doesn't get a look in at all. Will that have no. to change now, Neve? Well, that's the great thing is, you see, what, what's great about this discovery, it's made us kind of look around and kind of do a 180 and go, oh, well, maybe we should be looking at um, at Venus now. And I think that's that's kind of what I think the, the scientists, the research group that were involved in this would like to see happen, that we put another mission back to Venus. I mean, you know, the European Space Agency had Venus Express orbiting Venus um, up until 2014. And um, there's been other probes that have gone there, but nothing really as in-depth as that. As, uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, we have another lander heading to Mars, Perseverance from NASA on its way. So, yeah, it, it, I agree with you. I think we should be looking at Venus. And uh, and yeah, and it it is this constant that's in our night sky. It's up there at the moment, you know. Um, it, at the moment, it's rising around about 3 a.m. in the morning and going down around 6 p.m. So if you look kind of, um, if you look in the, in the northeast part of the sky, if you're up early enough around 6 a.m., you should see it there shining brightly. And, and it kept me alive during the lockdown, I'll tell you, because in March and April, it was exceptionally, exceptionally bright. So it's always been a, um, a planet that we can see in our night sky most of the time. So oh, Sounds gorgeous. So uh, and yeah. I suppose the big question for another day, perhaps, Neve, is if there is life out there, what do we do about it? Oh, well, there you go. I mean, that's what's, I mean, we're heading in that direction, whether we find organic material on Mars or on Titan or Enceladus or Europa or now even Venus. The implications for us as a species makes us kind of ponder the bigger questions about who we are and why are we here and, um, you know, are we really as unique as we, we like to think of ourselves being on planet Earth? So it helps us with our bigger place in space and the bigger <laughs> it questions. It sure does. Big questions for a Tuesday morning. Thank you very much it indeed, does. Dr. Neve Shaw, scientist and space expert on the possibility of life on Venus. Now, there was a big surprise around this time yesterday for a young Syrian-born woman now living with her family in Ireland. She was singled out for mention by EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in her maiden speech at the Union Address yesterday. Mrs von der Leyen was highlighting the skills and talents of people who sought refuge in Europe and, as a case in point, spoke about 18-year-old Suad Adshel, who is now a student doctor at Dublin's Royal College of Surgeons. I think of Suad the teenage Syrian refugee who arrived in Europe dreaming of being a medical doctor. Within three years, she was awarded a prestigious scholarship from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. 
Ursula von der Leyen. Well, Suad joins us on the line now. Very good morning to you, Suad. And uh, thanks for talking to us this morning. Good morning, um, Ryan. Did this come as a surprise to you? It was a complete, complete surprise. Um, uh, I felt so grateful and so honoured and my parents were over the moon to, to hear that this morning, yesterday morning, so this time yesterday. <laughs> and how did, how, did you, how did you become aware that you'd got this shout out? Uh, I actually got an email and a phone call from the RCSI press office telling me um, that I had been name dropped by, by the president. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and do you know at this stage how she came to know of your story? No, uh, I assume it was by. I, I assume it was from the my pictures with the minister this time last year. I assume that's how she found out about me, but um, yeah, <laughs> well, complete your, surprise. Yours and your family's is a remarkable story. Um, you fled Syria, I think, was it in, in, in 2011, but came here mm-hmm. as a 14-year-old. Yes, yes, in 2016. And what was that experience for you at, at that time? Because you spent some, some time in direct provision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the hardest time of my life, um, but I think I came out of it in the most positive way that someone could. Um, and when you say yeah. it was hard, what what are you talking about? Uh, just uh, it was a tremendous moment of change for mm. all of us. Um, I was m- away from my father for the first time. Um, I was with my mom af- in a in in one room for <laughs> for around nearly a year. I was in an unfamiliar place, you know. Um, I was doing my junior cert as well. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a difficult time, but but eventually you moved on. You moved out. Yes. You you mm-hmm. your family got uh, uh, a residency here, mm-hmm. um, and you had this ambition is from from early on to study medicine. Is that right? Yes, I've always wanted to study medicine. Yeah. yeah. So that was something you were working towards, even even when you were in the direct provision, studying. Oh, hard. absolutely. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was offered to either study TY or do um, junior cert, considering I'd be doing it only in one year, where it's a three year program. Uh, but I opted for that because it would sort of put me in the right headspace to move on to fifth year then. Mm-hmm. And what, wh- where did that come from? What, what gave you that passion for, for medicine? To be honest, um, as long as I remember I wanted to be a doctor, I don't know exactly when that seed was planted. But um, yeah. <laughs> so really from when you were back living in Syria, it was something, mm-hmm. an, an ambition yeah. you had. And, and, and despite the, the, the upheavals um, and, and the, the many difficulties, there was something you clung on to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how how's, how are things going in the Royal College of Surgeons? Uh, they're going brilliantly. I actually have my first online lecture at 9 a.m. <laughs> today. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really excited. I had one hell of a first year and I can't wait to, to uh, see what, what's next in the next four. It'll be, it'll be a very different uh, year, obviously, with COVID and the restrictions around that. But you do, yes. you do spend time in college because, of yes, course, that's essential. Yes, mm-hmm. we We actually, so today's online and tomorrow's in person. Yeah. Well, listen, it's lovely talking to you and uh, I can s- well see wha- how, how proud your parents are of you. And, and the fact <laughs> that you got this, uh, this mention yesterday, that's really, that's really terrific. Thank you so much. Thank All you right, for well saying listen, that. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us. That was Suad uh, Agile talking to us there. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.